Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Toronto City Councillor Joe Cressy. I asked Joe to join me for a few reasons. First, he's helped to lead the city's pandemic response as the chair of Toronto's Board of Health. And somehow, unlike in my federal and excessively partisan world, he and his council colleagues have put the politics aside, for the most part, and put public health first. In that same role, Joe has also been vocal about the need for stronger efforts to combat the ongoing opioid crisis. As one example, he helped to secure intergovernmental approval for Toronto's supervised consumption sites, and the Board of Health has recently called on the federal government to decriminalize the possession of drugs for personal use following Vancouver and BC's lead. We also talk housing affordability, how could we not, a growing problem not only across our country, but one that is particularly acute here in Toronto. And finally, I asked Joe to join me because he is leaving politics at the end of this term, and it's rare to see someone walk away having built the reputation that he has, and at this particular moment in his career. Now, by way of brief background, both of Joe's parents were city councillors. He managed the campaign for his friend Mike Layden's successful council run. And after running for the NDP in the 2014 federal by-election in an ultimately losing bid to Adam Vaughn, he then ran successfully municipally later that year, and he served his Spadina, Fort York community and our broader city ever since. With all of that, here's my conversation with Joe. Joe, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure, Nate. Always good to be here, bro. We spoke very early on in the pandemic, and we were speaking at that point over the phone about the opioid crisis, from my recollection, but you were isolating from your family at the time. And it struck me then, and it strikes me now, having seen you in the news, but you've obviously worked very closely with the mayor as the chair of the Board of Public Health, but you have been, unlike many politicians at all levels, you really have been at the front lines of the pandemic response from a political perspective. And I mean, obviously the isolation from family must have been tough, but I imagine just the, the this has taken a toll on public health care workers and this has taken a toll on frontline workers in so many different ways, but it's, it's taken a toll on you too, I think. Okay, I mean, on all of us and, and, and you know, in, on me and my, in different ways that I'm happy to, to talk about. Maybe Nate, just to, to give, set the context, let me give you a little bit of terms of how we structured our COVID response in the city, because I think it's an interesting one and it's it's a unique model and one that I think has served us well. So, you know, coming up on two years ago in March of 2020, when when the pandemic when this turned into a global pandemic, we set up at the city a strategic COVID command team, and as an interim emergency governance framework. At the political level, with the mayor and myself sitting there, I chair the Board of Health, as you mentioned, Um, but then our city manager, deputy city managers, emergency um, service division chiefs, and our medical officer of health. And we set it up as an emergency governance model, but I will tell you at a political level, it was set up almost like a wartime cabinet model. Um, This is an emergency. And, you know, as the order of government that is on the front lines of service delivery and response... um, you know, I think to his credit, because the mayor and I come from very different political traditions and backgrounds, uh, though we share many values, but we come from different political traditions. To his credit, he said, this is an emergency that requires a wartime cabinet. It's a coalition government. And so we have governed in that manner for coming up on nearly two straight years, every single day, as part of our COVID command team, first thing in the morning. Um, you An know, interesting comparison, just by the way, to if I think of the, the experience at the federal level, and then I see the experience at the provincial level and a more fractious debate. But even at the federal level, we 
had great cooperation, I think, early on. And there was this recognition that this is a crisis and an emergency and we need to respond in kind. And there was a willingness to pass emergency legislation. And, and there has been that willingness in moments since, but increasingly as we have gotten away from those initial moments of concern and, and worry, and especially this past summer, but I would even say in the lead up to this past federal election, one of the reasons that the federal election came about even was things really had devolved in our parliament. And at the city level, you've managed to maintain, it, it seems from the outside at least, that that sort of wartime cabinet and let's put our stores down and work together to get this thing done. You know, and I've reflected a lot, actually, Nate, you know, through our experience at the city, because listen, it's not like we at a political level, there's 25 councillors, we come from different political backgrounds and traditions. It's not like we sing Kumbaya together normally all the time. But through this COVID pandemic, I mean, I can't think of a single vote that hasn't been unanimous on a pandemic related matter in two years. And I so I've reflected a lot on that. And like, could you imagine at a provincial or federal level in a partisan environment where um, could you imagine uh, a prolonged wartime cabinet coalition model? Um, it's harder. I mean, you, the minute you bring um, parties in play, it's harder. Um, I would also acknowledge, you know, election cycles make it much harder. Um, I'm not running for re-election. The mayor has not announced what he's doing or not. If we were both running for the same position, it would be much harder to govern in a wartime cabinet model. I've reflected a lot. I mean, I think what you just talked about there is early on, there was a real sense of urgency. And, you know, the posters were all in this together that we saw spring up across the city. That manifested itself at political levels, too, with emergency legislation on the Hill. Um, but as you as you pointed out, I mean, that's ebbed and flowed over the course of two years, and it's much harder during election cycles. But it truly it does. It does seem to me that in a time of crisis, you do want to see coalition government, um, uh, at least on an issue by issue basis. It's not easy. Um, big decisions carry big contrasts. But I think it, at the municipal level, it has served us well. Uh, and on a personal level, listen, I like I'm an activist. I grew up doing anti-war, anti-globalization activism before doing HIV and AIDS work. And the last two years, I've been privileged to, to be in a position where I'm also governing. And that's been a learning experience as well for me. And so as much as this has been hard on all of us, and I've had my share of struggles through it, I've also learned a ton. So I'm grateful for that. And how, did, how have you navigated through that wartime cabinet some of the more contentious but pandemic-related decisions. So I think at the federal level of vaccine mandates, I'm a supporter of sensible vaccine mandates, and I think they are effective at driving up vaccination rates. And we know everyone should go get vaccinated for all sorts of reasons, but including to protect our healthcare system and not only on an individual basis. But when you looked at vaccine mandates, was that that contentious at the city level? Were there moments of pandemic-related contention, at least? You know, it's interesting. Like, I think, and it's not that our... To your point, like the pandemic response is not simply public health measures. I mean, it's in the city of Toronto, it's shelter and shelter hotels and housing. It's emergency childcare. It's um, where we provide, how we run a vaccination campaign and where the resources go. These are, these are, these are controversial issues on the best of days, let alone during an emergency. Um, I think one of the things that at the municipal level, I would acknowledge at the outset, when I talk about a coalition model, the mayor's executive committee and his political um, his political voting block is 
generally right of center, center and right of center. Um, as the chair of the Board of Health, members on my board include me, Councillor Gord Perks, Mike Layton, Kristen Wong-Tam, not exactly a right center coalition. And I mention that because, you know, I think we have been able across council to find points of common ground in unity um, because this has been jointly led from the left and the right together. The mayor and I have together forged a broad coalition. Um, I think the other thing, and I, I think this speaks well to all councillors, is where there have been disagreements, we have acknowledged in a moment of uncertainty and challenge, our residents, they want to see people working together, not fighting. And so we sought to resolve them behind the scenes. So the vaccine mandate is a good example. We were the first city in Canada to come out with a strong vaccine mandate policy. Every member of the City of Toronto staff has to be vaccinated unless there is a legitimate medical or human rights ground for an exemption. 99% of our 35,000 staff are now fully vaccinated. It's a remarkable uptake. Um, I would, you know, it's not like all 25 members of council loved this policy, um, but all 25 supported this policy. And so it, where there were concerns or differences or disagreements, we resolved them behind the scenes. I think there are lessons in terms of that collaborative decision-making for other crises. And I think in the role in which you occupy, and I mentioned at the outset, one of our earlier conversations was about the opioid crisis. And we've seen now across the country over 25,000 Canadians who have been killed in this crisis because of a poison drug supply, principally since early 2016. And it is, we see public health experts stand up at the microphone and we listen to them in the course of this pandemic. I wish we listened to them in the course of the opioid crisis. I know you share that view. Do you, do you see that center-right voting block on council? Or are they coming around on this issue, recognizing that we've got to follow the evidence and that they may not all like the politics of it, but they recognize the need to follow the evidence to save lives? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, if I, if I reflect on six, seven years ago, when I was the chair of the Toronto Drug Strategy at the time, when we were seeking to win approval to open supervised consumption sites, supervised injection sites, as we called them then, when we were seeking to win approval for that six, seven years ago, uh, approval municipally and then also provincially and federally, um, we had to convince people that overdoses were an issue. So we had to, we had to, the first... The first obstacle in implementing harm reduction was convincing the general public that there was a problem that needed a solution. And I, I say that off the top because what has changed so dramatically in the last six or seven years is that nobody, nobody is immune to the overdose opioid crisis that exists. Everybody knows and can see and, and most families have now been touched by it. And, and so I think that the the recognition that this is a crisis and one that cannot be ignored has changed the landscape on the issue to the point that people are looking for solutions. It, if you don't believe there's an, an issue, it's very easy to say, I don't support harm reduction. Well, if there's an issue, you need what's your solution, if not a different approach? So I think that's changed the landscape significantly. I think we see that reflected in the fact that, as you alluded to, there's you know, from chiefs of police to medical officers of health, all coming out in support of, of a new legal approach. Um, has that done enough to change the politics on it? I mean, there is so much stigma associated with drug use that even in the face of an insurmountable tragedy and evidence, the politics, I don't think, have changed quite yet. People are still afraid to use the word, I know at the federal level too, I mean, 
I, I haven't been able to get the liberal government to use the language of decriminalization, to use the language certainly, I think they, they, they have though, in fairness, embraced harm reduction. We've expanded harm reduction. There's money in our platform, hopefully will be in the budget around expanding treatment options. And they have embraced the language of safer supply. But if you speak to, and I know the city benefits from that with some pilot projects, but if you speak to folks that are involved in those pilot projects, they're so small scale, the money runs out real quick and they're serving dozens of people when they really need to be serving hundreds and thousands of people. And we haven't gotten to a place where enough of us, I would say, are willing to talk not only decriminalization, but to talk about legalization, regulation, and we get to a safer supply by having a legal, strictly regulated supply. Listen, I think you and I would both, you know, knowing where we both come from, we would both acknowledge that decrim uh, will come in this country. It's not a question of uh, of if, but when. Um, and it will become it will come because it's necessary and it's it's proven and it will it will contribute to a more dignified and a more beneficial and healthy public policy framework. Um, you know, so on contentious political issues like decrim, and you talk about it like you know people don't even like to say the word. And you know, even in the city of Toronto, where we've submitted an exemption as of two weeks ago to the federal government, to the Minister of Health, to allow the small possession of drugs in our city. Even then, a lot of our supporters in the city have qualified it with decrim so long as it's coupled with all these other services. And it should be coupled with all these other services, but on its own, it will have an impact. But it's, so there's a hesitancy on this. Um, so I have this on really tough political issues. I have this fundamental view that there's a time to follow public opinion and lead public opinion. And when it comes to a new approach to dealing with drug use, I think the public is ready. I, I actually think this isn't a matter of us leading public opinion to a public health approach to drug use. I actually think the public is ahead of the politicians on this one. And it's just time for political parties to, to have the courage to do what's right, but also to, to, to recognize the public's already there. There's just going to be a small, loud cohort that's going to try to make an issue out of it. But to that point, just I think a willingness also to stand down when we talk about collaborative decision making and I'm not so comfortable with the decision, but I'm going to live with it because I understand that this is the right thing to do in the end, instead of playing politics with it, what we've seen with drug policy, at least at the federal level, is traditionally conservative politicians have played politics with it and they've whipped up that minority support in a really negative way that then strikes fear into, I guess, liberal governments. I'm not sure to be to be more incremental and less ambitious, but we need all parties to this. We need politicians to lead. And we also need those who have the tendency or the inclination to oppose in a really nasty way just to stand down. And in the same, the model that you described around, this is a crisis. We all come to the table. We have our voice heard. We don't always agree perfectly, but we recognize that this is a crisis that needs to be resolved. That same approach needs to translate to this crisis as well. You know what? It's a really interesting point. I mean, I mean, this is one of those use an analogy to political campaigns to negative advertising and negative advertising works. So we continue to do it, but it also brings down the tone and tenor of the debate, which I think turns people off writ large, but it works. So we do it. Um, so to have a truly high level political campaign, you actually need the political leadership to say, you know what, we know it works, but we're not going to do it because we think there's a better way. So imagine to flip that a similar conversation as it relates to decrim across the political parties, to your point. It's a conversation amongst, you know, in this case, the Aaron O'Toole and the Prime Minister and Jagmeet uh, Singh to all say, 
listen, we know we could all score different political points on this if we whip this up, but the crisis and the level of tragedy is significant enough that we owe it to the public to have a policy debate on it, not a, not a, a dog whistle debate on it. That's possible. The beauty of a conversation like that is it, it's, that's up to the leader. There will be right-wing commentators and others who will try to whip up things no matter what. But whether it becomes a dog whistle political issue is up to the leader. And a crisis of this type, I think a conversation can be had. Even if we disagree on policy, let's agree to not play in the mud on this issue. I, I, I don't think it's an impractical approach. And on a city level where, where you're focused, I mean, letting the public health officials lead is also a way of taking the politics out of it to say, we're going to follow our chief medical health officer, and we're not going to necessarily have a fractious debate at council. We're going to lead through the Board of Public Health, as you have, and we're going to follow the lead of Eileen Davila. That seems like a useful way, as you seem to be proceeding, to take the politics out of it as well. At the local level, when it comes to decrim, you know, it feels like rolling a rock up a hill for a really long time until, until our colleagues and your colleagues are ready to kick it over the ledge. You know, the continuum of change is just that, right? You know, wherever you stand, on the outside, on the inside, and whichever party you're in, the continuum of change is rolling rocks and hills. So our approach to de- around decriminalization in Toronto. So we, our board of health has, as you noted, we have formally called for decriminalization four times over the last four years. We formally submitted an exemption application as of two weeks ago, which we directed our our medical officer of health to do. But every step of the way, my principal focus has been creating the conditions for the federal government to say yes, not being loud and vocal and setting the feds up to say no. And so, for example, our board of health endorsed decrim and it's been sent to the federal minister of health, which is all that's required. We didn't bring it to city council. We didn't need to bring it to city council. In order for the federal government to consider our exemption application, they don't need a city council vote. To bring it to city council would be to create a potentially acrimonious debate to create the impression of conflict where one shouldn't exist. Uh, decrim is just good public policy. So we, we have been deliberate in the steps we've taken to try to take the controversy in politics out. And I, you know, listen, the continuum of change involves people at all levels. And I would, I would acknowledge and lead with here that, you know, those on the front lines are, you know, harm reduction workers who are seeing colleagues and friends and clients die every single day on the streets have every right to say, and they should say, the city should be louder. The city should fight harder. Why the hell isn't, you know, why the hell isn't Joe? Why am, why am I not yelling bloody murder? Because ultimately I want to create the conditions for the feds to say yes. And my firm political calculation is when decrim is seen as a as a, as a consensus new model, as opposed to a dog whistle debate, that it's more likely to pass. And we all play different roles in different ways at different levels, because then as I've turned my mind to the drug policy conversation and moving past decrim to regulation of all substances according to their respective harms, I feel like I just need to talk about that latter point more because I think decriminalization will happen. And I think you're right about that. And we'll see, we we see cities and the province of BC pushing and we've got legislation at the federal level that will lead to de facto decriminalization anyway. And so I think we just need to continue to move the yardsticks. And then in my role in caucus and in public, I need to help move the conversation further. So then 
the government hopefully will catch up and feel pushed and to follow the evidence increasingly. I think you're right. Just people should demand people to be louder and, and that's important, but in the end, I think we have to be effective and as effective as possible, but in being effective, we all play different roles. Now in terms of those different roles and to take the conversation in a slightly different direction. So cities have pushed on the decrim conversation, pushed the federal government to do something within our jurisdiction to do. And I'm glad that cities are exercising that leadership. Now, if we take the conversation to housing, there are tools in the federal toolkit. We could talk about stress tests for investors. We could talk about some taxation tools. So much of the all levels of government working together to answer the housing crisis, the answers reside at other levels other than the federal level. And so now in this last platform, we have the federal government saying, we're going to have this housing accelerator that will push cities to adopt inclusive zoning and to push back against NIMBYism. Do you see that as a useful push from the feds? And, and how do we make that tool useful? Have you turned your mind to that at all? I mean, I, I think on the housing piece, I mean, so one thing I just acknowledge and start with is affordable housing means different things to different people, right? So affordable housing, one of the, you know, affordable housing is, in other words, housing affordability. People can see themselves in the need for housing affordability at almost every run of, rung of the income ladder, which is why all governments are now to, trying to be seen as the champions of affordable housing, um, because everybody sees themselves or sees some need for themselves in it. And, and so to that basis, just in terms of like on an accelerator around more inclusive zoning and intensification, from, from a supply side basis, especially for um middle of the market housing. Uh, absolutely. Like let's, you know, we need more inclusive zoning. Um, and, and I think there are incentives that can be used by the feds to help to create those conditions or to, or to accelerate that is a good thing. You don't control the planning acts, the provinces do, but any, any form of acceleration you can do to help spur municipalities to create more inclusive zoning, I think is a good step. But again, on the affordable housing discussion, that helps people at the mid-market. Um, you know, the piece on affordable housing that's, that I'm also focused on and I spend more, more of my time on is at the housing subsidy level. Where are we creating truly deep affordable housing with deep subsidies so that people who are on the poverty line or are making minimum wage can afford it? I think the feds have, have stepped up in huge ways uh, in the last seven years compared to the past. Uh, you know, and your old colleague, my old pal, Adam Bond, was, you know, he, I, I'm sure he caused a lot of trouble in caucus, but it was good trouble. Um, we needed it at, at the city level. But support, you know, subsidized housing is where we all need to do more. It's much easier to create the incentives for mid-market housing, but deep subsidized housing is is going to continue. It's the one piece that I don't see any order of government properly addressing yet. Do you think, though, from the perspective of wearing blowback, because this is about managing politics in its own way. I looked at a project. It was not rapid housing initiative money. It was pre-RHI, but it was similar to RHI. And we built the city is building modular housing in East York. And the community is very mad about it in the Oh, this was area. the parking lot. The, the parking, parking lot. lot yes, exactly. The, the, the hub of the, the community. Of, the yeah, hub exactly. of the community. That's exactly. Right. But... My view of that was I weighed in in support of that project to help 
just wear some of that. It, it wasn't, it, I was not involved in anything to do with the process and approvals and planning, but just to say we need more housing and we need to end homelessness and the federal government's there as a strong partner and yeah. we're going to provide money and we got to do this quickly and we need more of this. We And so the RHI, the Rapid Housing Initiative is, is more of this and we've seen two rounds. I hope we see a third round in the coming budget, but I see that as a way of the federal government wearing the the blowback in some ways to say we're a partner with the city and yeah we're going to set timelines and the city is going to have to build and we're there as a strong partner to help them build and i do worry at times when it comes to building the necessary supply at all levels but including supply to address homelessness and to address that deep poverty the blowback from the community does worry counselors such that we don't see the action at city hall that we should because it's more of a suburban council than say the city of Vancouver might be. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think that is, I think it's fair to say that, you know, everybody likes people like shelters and they like the idea of deep supportive housing and they like it more, the further it is away from, them. you know, that, that, um, that, that unfortunate adage does play out in some communities, not all communities. I can assure you of that where, you know, we've had tons of examples, especially in my downtown ward of communities embracing uh, change. Listen, I, I think this one, I think the, the politics of this is one where we just have to do the right thing. Like I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, Nate here trying to think about, is there a way like have, has the, in, has the prominence and the, prevalence of homelessness risen to a point that people are seeing it differently and understanding the need. I was trying to think through it and like, you know what, at the end of the day, this is a case of the fundamental duty of a person in a society is to care for the most vulnerable. And this is the right thing to do. And we just have to go out and make that case every single time. And then we come at it with, and it's not going to impact your property values at all. And, you know, crime doesn't go up. And when you come back with all the facts, at the end of the day, it's, this is, when it comes to deep, much needed, deeply affordable housing, it's just the right thing to do. So from the politics of it, the policy should be that, you know, affordable housing is being built everywhere in every community because it is, you know, we're a city together doing that. Um, and so, you know, so for communities that are NIMBYs, you know, you give politicians an out. Well, every community has this, but I guess I'm coming at it from the vantage point that it actually makes us better and stronger when we when we are when we protect the most vulnerable and like, I don't have a lot of time for the NIMBY side. I just, I'm going to do it and people will respect me or not. <laughs> you mentioned Adam Vaughn and you maintained a good relationship with him despite your differences and despite being political opponents at, at least once. I wish you'd run in this past federal election and we'd have you instead of Kevin Vaughn and you could have beat him a second time, but you, your parents are, your parents were counselors and you have you ran for the federal seat and then obviously you've been doing this for almost two full terms now did you always see yourself getting involved in politics we're, we're of the same i think vintage as far as it goes i think we're we're both 37 birthdays both i'm in june you're in july and you are obviously concluding your term now in in the coming fall but did was this always a path for you you mentioned there. So my, both of my parents had, had served in, in, at city hall in Toronto and they both served two terms and then left on their own accord. Um, they didn't lose an election. They just decided to move on. Um, and then they went to lead great careers contributing to this city and, and frankly, living a balanced life. Um, 
And so, look, I, I say that in the sense I was grown up in a household, both one that, um, you know, was very much values driven and you contribute to your community, but two, that politics was one place in which people could serve, but was not a career. That was, I, I was brought up with that sort of ethos. I ran federally seven, eight years ago, I guess now. Adam trounced me um, in that by-election. Um, I didn't know he was going to be running when I announced, and but um, I had always aspired to, to be part of great political debates. And in, when I was younger, I really enjoyed the, the, as a social Democrat, the partisan political arena. Uh, when I lost that federal seat, I ran municipally. I had never thought I would run municipally. I, I liked I like my backgrounds in humanitarian affairs and international issues. I liked the idea of the grand debates and at parliament, but I lost a by-election and ran municipally and I have loved it. Um, and I am leaving elected office at the end of this term. And I actually can't imagine having spent eight years at city hall and having especially spent the last two years in the model in which we've governed through the pandemic. I can't imagine going back to the partisan environment. Um, it, it, I just can't, you know, and I know not like everybody approaches it differently. And you are one of the, you are one of those who approach partisan politics very differently than most. Um, I just can't bring myself to be angry at the other side because they're the other side. And so I, no, I, I'm not, I have no idea what, what I'm going to do next. Uh, I know it's not going to be in politics. I don't plan to return to politics. I will never say never, but I don't plan to return. But had you asked me eight years ago, I would have said, no, I'm going to leave after two terms. But secretly, I was thinking higher office. Whereas after two years, two terms here, I'm leaving and I, I'm hoping to not come back. I'm jealous at times of city council and city councillors in, in the nonpartisan environment, the less partisan environment, I should say, than the one in which I inhabit. But I'm also jealous because of you're in Toronto and you are in your bed at night and, and with your family in a way that I can't be if I'm in Ottawa, but you've also spoken of the toll. I, I, my first question to you was the toll of the pandemic, but I think just workload, even probably pre-pandemic, this job has taken a toll on you because I, I forget exactly how you put it, but you can't be the father that you want to be, presumably the husband that you want to be as well, while leading the city in a way that you want it to be led. Yeah. And listen, I, when I talk about my my own job as a counselor and the chair of the board of health and the the emotional toll it's taken i always you know and i think we should all do this would center that in in the acknowledgement that i have it pretty lucky and easy right and like i but I, I think it's really important to say it again and again you know like i have a house we have a family like i have a good job and stable employment and health so i have it very like i have it very very privileged um though you know so with that, you know, qualification, um, politics takes a toll. There is, and governing takes a toll as well, um, because there is the expectation of access at all times, at all hours of the day. As a as an elected leader, we represent people, and so there is an expectation that we will be available to represent them. Um, there is the burden of decision making which is not an insignificant burden. And I will tell you during a pandemic where we are literally dealing with lives at stake, it is an emotional burden on a daily basis to be confronted with decisions that carry real consequences. And then from a work-life balance perspective, because of the hours and the emotional investment, I'm, you know, 
I haven't always been as present as I would have liked to have been. Um, and so, you know, all of that takes a toll. Um, now, on the flip side, I have felt I've been able to learn and contribute in ways, you know, I'm not sure throughout the rest of my career I'll ever be able to learn and contribute. And so the toll was worth it, but it takes a toll. I also, listen, I have a view of politics. I think people, I believe in term limits. I think people should get in, do really good, be really hungry, and then get out and contribute elsewhere. And I think that that approach leads to better outcomes because I think people give it their all for the right reasons. Yeah, I think you're right just on that point about hunger. There's a moment where you look in the mirror and you say, I have different priorities, be they family priorities or otherwise. And if I don't feel like I am putting my all into this job in a way that it deserves, then it may well be time for someone else. And that's what I took to be from your public comments. You love the job. You feel like you've made an incredible difference, but it's time for someone else to give it their all. And, and you've got other things to contribute in different ways. Yeah. I listen, I, I mean, I think I often find that some of the best politicians are the reluctant politicians. And you and I have spent a lot of time, not in the last two years, but over the years as elected officials going to, you know, like events on a Saturday night. And there are some elected leaders who love nothing more than, you know, giving a 60 second greeting at some dinner gala banquet on a Saturday night. And they enjoy it. They're, they're seeing people, they're talking, they're an extrovert, and they actually drive ener- derive energy from being on the stage for those 60 seconds. Um, every Saturday night, I had to go to a ballot gala or a banquet or a meeting to do one of those things. It was like crushing. All yeah. I want to do is like be at, at home watching a movie or like at a dinner party. Um, and so, you know, but it's part of the job. And, but, you know, like, but I find, you know, far too often some of the, the politicians who love the job the most aren't always in it for the right reasons. They, 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 it, pure total extroverts who don't necessarily, it's not impact oriented. As you think about not only what's next, I, I want to, I, I expect you'll just tell me, oh, you know, I'm looking for contributing in, in some public facing way. I think I read in the star, you said maybe United Way or something like that, but uh, I'm, I'm interested when you look, when you look back, you're almost at the conclusion of two terms. Do you have any regrets? And I'll give you an example before you answer on my end. There's one motion that eats away at me that I voted incorrectly. And it was around the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. And I've been very vocal subsequently pushing the government to join it. But at the time, I was convinced incorrectly by a line from Global Affairs. And I regret that vote. It bothers me. Are there any decisions you made at council? There are an unlimited number that it's hard to keep track of them all. But are there any moments where you thought, I should have done things differently that stand out over almost eight years now? To reflect on many. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's often... I think I have tried on the big items and the big decisions to, to, to live my values and be principled in terms of the big votes and the big issues I was on. Um, it's, it's too easy to betray your principles on the little ones. And, and I've done that from time to time. I remember, I remember I had just been elected. I was a brand new counselor. I was 30 years old and some residents came to see me about concerns about a committee of adjustment application for a basement apartment on their street because it would change the character of the neighborhood. And what I should have done was use that as a, as a moment to engage the neighborhood and the street about, okay, what are we really afraid of? 
<laughs> what do we, like, who are we and what are our values and how do we live it better? And instead, I just, I heard them out and didn't challenge it, didn't oppose it, didn't support it, didn't do anything. And, and I, you know, that's, it's, there are, you know, I regret that one in a big way. Uh, and there's lots of those little ones. Um, so, you know, it's, I'll, I'll reflect on it more, but it, as I reflect back on, I think I've been, I think I've lived my values. I mean, principled on the big ones, but I'm, there are little ones like that where it's too easy to say, it's the politics of this. It's too easy to say, I'm not going to get in a fight on the little thing because I need their support on the big thing. I came here with the intention to, to accomplish some things before I left. And, and I'm proud of the things we accomplished. It was, I, I remember at the, on election night in 2018, so I'd been reelected. Um, I remember being kind of disappointed. Mayor Tory had been reelected. And I, I said to some members of my family, I said, you know, I will have spent my eight years at City Hall and being an outsider the entire time, rolling rocks up hills earlier to our conversation. And, you know, I've actually come to learn that at City Hall, you can be on the outside and the inside at the same time. And, you know, part of that is, you know, being picking your moment and organizing well. And part of it is just getting along. Right. It's uh, not not letting the, the politics of difference become toxic. And, and that allows you to be effective here, too. So well, being on the inside and the outside at the same time sounds a lot like my life. So you'd, you'd, be an, you'd be an excellent caucus colleague if you ever choose to resume politics at some point in your life. But Joe, thanks for thanks for joining me, and I I look forward to see what you do next. It's a it's a pleasure, bro. If you have suggestions for future guests from any party and obviously any level of government any country for that matter, or any expert, definitely reach out, info at beynate.ca. You can follow me on social media. Beynate is the handle regardless of platform. And if you listen and you like what we're doing, leave a positive review on your platform of choice. And with that, until next time.